Hi, this is John, your host. We're so glad to finally be back with more Speaking of Work. In preparation for the launch of our fourth episode, we've gone back and re-edited the first three episodes, and we're re-releasing them over the next week. In some cases, particularly here in episode one, we've made some pretty considerable changes and improvements. We hope that you like them as much as we do. Okay, now, on with the show. In 2017, Iowa's Republican governor and Republican-dominated legislature made sweeping changes to a piece of legislation that had shaped the state in decisive ways for over 40 years. That legislation was Iowa's Public Employment Relations Act, often referred to in labor relations circles as Chapter 20, in reference to its place in Iowa's legal code. First enacted in 1974, Chapter 20 had transformed Iowa by providing for collective bargaining by the state's public sector workers. That is, it had provided a legal framework for those workers employed in government service, so everyone from firefighters to corrections officers to road crews, graduate students, and public school teachers, to organize into unions and to bargain as a group to improve their working conditions. In the process, the law had made it possible for those workers to improve not only their lives, but those of generations of Iowans all across the state. They not only transformed poorly paid and sometimes disrespected work into middle-class jobs, but they created a critical counterweight at a time when deindustrialization was putting increasing downward pressure on Iowa workers and their communities. In this season, we go back in time to uncover the roots of Chapter 20 and to place it in its historical context, both to understand its impact and to understand the meaning and significance of the ongoing struggle over unionism, democracy, and the public good in Iowa and across the U.S. Our first stop, Keokuk, a little industrial town on the Mississippi River, right where Illinois, Missouri, and Iowa meet, and where, just over 50 years ago, teachers and other school workers waged a strike that jump-started Iowa's movement for public sector unionism. I'm John McCurley, and this is Speaking of Work, the podcast from the Iowa Labor History Oral Project, Season 1, Citizen Worker, Episode 1, Keokuk, Before the Strike. started going to Keokuk to conduct interviews, I was struck by how familiar the place was. I'd grown up in Alabama and lived for a little over a decade in Iowa with a short stint in mid-Missouri. Keokuk was like a mixtape of the small towns and cities that I'd visited in the South and Midwest over the years. First, it had a name that recalled the native peoples who had once lived there. In Keokuk's case, the city celebrated white people's memory of a sock chief who had worked for peace with the U.S. during the early 1800s and, in return, had ended his life as a refugee in Kansas. It also had a small, although at 4%, a little over state average, black population that had its origins with formerly enslaved people fleeing north during the Civil War, and it had been the scene of a dramatic fight for school integration. Yeah, those happened in Iowa too. Front and center, though, was the evidence of capital flight and deindustrialization. Every time I drove south into the city, I passed by the few remaining factories, the fast food chains, and a still proud but dilapidated downtown 
that had once housed any number of thriving businesses which were now repurposed with antique and knick-knack shops. But off this rather well-beaten path was something much more interesting and unexpected. Out in the northeast part of the city, between the main drag and the Mississippi River, was Keokuk's high school. Of course, high schools aren't usually all that remarkable, but this one was different. If anything, it reminded me of some of the buildings I'd seen from Cape Canaveral or my hometown, Huntsville, Alabama, a city that had boomed during the space race of the 1950s and 1960s and still regarded itself as the rocket city. Here in Keokuk, a little industrial city that otherwise evoked the brick and stone of the small town Midwest was a high school that was a multi-story modernist masterpiece with a massive wall of glass that seemed suspended in midair. As I later learned, this high school had been built in the early 1950s as part of a campaign by city boosters to compete at a time when money was flowing out of big Midwestern cities like Chicago and into places like Keokuk. Eager to throw off their rough frontier image, Keokuk fathers, and they were mostly men, looked to spur investment by building one of the strongest public school systems in the state. And to do that, they were gonna need teachers. One of my advisors informed me uh, in the spring of uh, 57 that there was a team from Keokuk recruiting on campus and that I should make sure and visit with them. And I, that's the first time I really ever heard of Keokuk. But I soon learned that, uh, that it had quite a reputation as a fine school system in Iowa. And uh, I uh, interviewed and I met a principal and the superintendent that day, and they invited me to come and visit on site here in Kilka. And so I made the trip up, and the superintendent gave me a little tour around town and uh, offered me a contract. So that's how I got to Kilka. When I graduated from the university in 1959, I was told at that time that the Keokuk School District was one of the top school districts to teach in, in the state of Iowa, because of how well they treated their teachers, how well they paid their teachers, the chance for advancement, and they encouraged you going back to school, and in some cases even paid uh, money for, uh, to you to help you on those advanced degrees. When I graduated from college, uh, which would have been 1965, I applied for a job in, in Keokuk. Uh, I wanted to teach there. It was a bigger town, you know, and, and uh, you know, I went and interviewed, and uh, uh, I don't remember whether the principal said this directly uh, or whether it was my impression, but that we don't, we don't take teachers who, we don't take new teachers. Get some experience and get your master's degree and then come back, you know. Uh, which I did three years later, you know, had a master's degree and three years of teaching, came back and was hired there. So I, I uh, and there was a, a, a dramatic uh, uh, salary differential between teaching uh, uh, 25 miles away in Cahoka and, you know, I, over, the, over the summer I got my master's degree, but I went from like uh, $5,200 to $9,500 or something like that in salary. Uh, and plus, you know, they had some, some benefits that uh, 
you know, I didn't even know existed, you know, as a, as a young teacher in, uh, in this rural Missouri town. Those were the voices of some of the many Keokuk teachers I interviewed for this project. When they were hired in the 1950s and 1960s, in many ways they considered themselves very lucky to have landed a job in Keokuk. The city and its public schools were very much on the rise. Between the late 1940s and mid-1960s, Keokuk's school district built new buildings like that high school I told you about and filled them with teachers. In fact, during those years, Keokuk's full-time teaching force almost doubled, growing from approximately 86 to 169. This for a small city of about 16,000 people. But Keokuk boosters didn't just want more teachers. They wanted highly educated and effective teachers, the kind that they believed attracted corporate investment from the small to medium-sized U.S. firms that still existed at the time and that made up the backbone of the city's economy. By 1970, almost half, that is 46%, of all Keokuk public school teachers had more than a bachelor's degree. That was the highest percentage in the state. We're talking about more than Des Moines or even Ames or Iowa City, where the state's two big public universities are located. So again, here in the late 1960s, in a little industrial city, off an interstate, and without a public or even a private four-year college or university, there was one of, if not the, best public school system in Iowa. By the mid-1960s, Keokuk's school district also had something only a few other districts in the state had, a master contract. Then as now, teachers tend to work for districts on a year-to-year basis. They sign individual contracts that spell out things like hours and pay. As teachers have long found, however, these individual contracts made it easy for school administrators to discriminate against them in a number of ways. Master contracts, by comparison, allowed teachers to join together and negotiate as a group. This not only made it less likely that a district would be able to pay some teachers less for the same work, but also made it possible to use their collective influence to get a better deal for everyone. Maybe even allowed them to address things beyond pay and benefits that were expressions of teachers' dignity and level of control of the workplace, like curriculum, the what and how of teaching. Although, as we're going to see, even a master contract wasn't always a silver bullet, especially when districts weren't bound by the results of negotiations. Since public school teachers are local public employees, their contracts are governed by state laws and local district policies, as opposed to private sector workers, like most factory workers say, whose workplace rights are mostly governed by federal laws. During the late 1950s and 1960s, following the lead of the Kennedy administration at the federal level, states and districts around the U.S. started to enact new laws opening up public sector collective bargaining. Of course, they didn't do this on their own, but when coalitions of bargaining supporters were able to overcome their opponents. In Iowa, the state's traditionally conservative Republican governments were starting to give way to liberals in both parties. But throughout the 1960s, the opponents of public sector collective bargaining were still more powerful in state government, so bargaining supporters couldn't rely on the law. That didn't mean the bargaining or at least negotiations weren't going on. Especially in urban areas like Keokuk, administrators and boosters realized that they could solve a lot of problems through sitting down across a table from their employees, 
and teachers found plenty of problems that they wanted to talk about and hopefully resolve as part of a master contract. In practice, that often meant turning their local affiliate of the national and state education associations in Keokuk, the Keokuk Education Association, or KEA, into something that increasingly looked a lot more like a union. So when you when you first got there, the Keokuk Education Association uh, was already in existence, I imagine. Yes, it was. Do, do you have a sense for when it was founded by chance? I have no clue. No. I have no clue. I just know that the opportunity was there, and I always looked at the Education Association as one of being an insurance policy mm-hmm. because there's always something that can occur that would be a liability against you, and you needed someone there to back you up. Historically, Kirkuk was a, a Kirkuk, uh, KEA was a, a meet every month and have dinner together. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that began long before I came to Kirkuk. It was understood and, and usually was mentioned in your recruitment interview that you were expected to be a member of KEA. The administration encouraged everyone. And in many years, it's 100%. Mm. And and we had our dinner together, and we had our speaker, and we had our entertainment, and we went home. Uh, The KEA had... uh, regular meetings uh, um, both at the building level and at, at across the uh, district uh, where uh, you know uh, speakers both for entertainment or inspiration were brought and you brought you put your best clothes on we went to the to the dining room at the holiday inn you know we you know, had a night out brought to you by the University of Iowa Labor Center, providing educational programs and research support to Iowa workers and their organizations since 1951. Right now, the Labor Center is offering customized classes for local unions. Topics include stewards training, the Family Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, workers' compensation, labor history, health and safety, organizing, and much, much more. The center staff work with you to customize agendas to meet your needs. You pick dates and times that work for you and your members, and labor educators provide handouts and set up any technology needed to participate. Classes include interactive discussions, real-life scenarios, and up-to-date information, so you can keep stewards and members engaged, informed, and connected. Don't wait. Schedule a class now by contacting the Labor Center at labor-center at uiowa.edu or call 319-335-4144. There was no particular conflict 
at any time except uh, up until about uh, 66. That's Miles Brewer, a longtime elementary school teacher in Keokuk and KEA officer. As someone who started his teaching career in the city back in the late 1950s, Brewer had a lot to say about the transition to collective bargaining in the school district, or, as he put it, the KEA shift from a supper club to a get-something-done club. Not surprisingly, the first driver of this shift was money. For teachers, as for many public sector workers back then, being left out of collective bargaining also meant being left out of the opportunity to expand pay. But pay was also part of a second issue, control. One of the major ways that districts increased teacher pay was by paying people more to do all the little things that needed to be done at a school, from lunchroom and cafeteria duty to coaching and advising clubs. But these kinds of extra duty opportunities could also feed an old problem, administrators tossing extra pay to people they liked and withholding extra pay from people they didn't. This was especially true when such opportunities for extra pay were also so-called merit pay. That is, tied to administrators' often very subjective assessments of teachers' performance in the classroom. It was quite a significant part of a person's salary if they'd been here any length of time at all. First-year teacher would not qualify for extra-duty pay. But the second-year teacher could. And I, I remember distinctly my first merit job <laughs> was extra time for extra pay, but it was selling uh, saving stamps, a residue of World War II in the Korea. Mm. The kids would buy these 50-cent stamps, and when they got $18.75 passed in their book, take it down to the post office and get a $25 bond. Mm. And so I set up a little uh, booth in the hall every Friday and sold the stamps. As time went on, I got paid extra for supervising troop, uh, safety patrol. I got paid extra for uh, supervising playground. I got paid extra for uh, supervising the lunchroom. So when Mr. Gas came to Keokuk, there was also a much more general problem of control. Many of Keokuk's new teachers, especially those with the MAs and PhDs, expected to be able to have more control over how and when they worked. In practice, this meant trying to negotiate over issues like personal leave and curriculum. Here's Mouse Brewer again. But there was a feeling that curriculum development should be formally addressed, not uh, administratively dominated. Hmm. The teachers... Uh, had good ideas about how to select a textbook mm -hmm. just like a principal would, and we should work. Our idea was, and, and as I remember it, <clears throat> that we should work more as a team and, uh, and, and look at these curriculum development issues as equals instead of there's a boss in the room and there's other people that will do what the boss says. Mm -hmm. But there was also another issue driving conflict between teachers and their bosses in Keokuk, 
one that was linked to pay and control, but that also went well beyond them. And that issue was sexism. In the 1960s, just as supporters of public sector collective bargaining were expanding workers' rights generally, labor and feminist groups were expanding the rights of women workers. Specifically, the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 provided some new opportunities for women and their allies to challenge sex and gender discrimination in the workplace. Unfortunately, however, these laws also left some serious loopholes by which women could still be paid less and be discriminated against in a variety of ways, including in dress, hiring, discipline, and pregnancy. Men and women weren't given the same salary, which was most interesting, because I always said if something happened to my husband, it cost me the same amount to buy a loaf of bread as it did if we were married. But that didn't seem to matter to them. Um, They would give men extra duty, but not women, so so you'd have the opportunity to add to your base salary. Um, So we wanted to wear a pants suit. Heaven forbid were we scolded if we were seen in slacks. Uh, If your skirt was too short, mine was once, I got a demerit on my contract, and it took away some of the money I was going to get for a raise because I happened to be wearing a fashionable miniskirt. Um, Being seen pregnant. I'd been married five years. Pregnancy occurred. I wasn't to be seen in public because that was indecent exposure. Another incident was being seen in a bathing suit. I don't think so. When I was getting ready to apply to the Keokuk School District, prior to that, my future father-in-law spoke to the superintendent of schools in Keokuk and said my future daughter-in-law plans to apply. And the superintendents asked about, about me, and the, my future father-in-law explained that, that we were going to be married in July, and so I would be looking for a position for that for the fall of 1960. The superintendent informed my father-in-law that he rarely or never hired young married women because it was, in in his experience, they very often became pregnant and then could not continue teaching. And he did not like that disruption in the school, in the uh, continuity of of the school year. Of course, today that that statement would not be allowed to be made. Also at that time, if you were pregnant, you probably, it wasn't considered seemly to teach beyond uh, the fifth or sixth month when you were at that point starting to wear maternity clothes. It was obvious that you were pregnant. So I did not apply to the Keokuk school system, but I did apply to the Catholic school system. Those were the voices of Janet Fife LaFriends and Jane Foggy Abel. Fife LaFriends, who was Janet Fife back then, taught at one of the city's elementary schools. Jane Abel, she's the one who started working in the city's Catholic schools when the superintendent didn't want to hire a young married woman back in the early 1960s. She later got on at the junior high. They were the first people to introduce me to the jaw-dropping stories of sex and gender discrimination in the school district. For example, Janet's reference to being seen in a bathing suit. 
That's a reference to an incident in which she and her husband, who was a high school industrial arts teacher, had gone out to the river, remember, Keokuk is a Mississippi River town, on a weekend. As Janet tells the story, she was wearing a two-piece bathing suit, again, weekend and river, and was seen in a convenience store by a parent of one of her students. That parent promptly picked up a telephone and called Janet's principal, who reprimanded her for conduct that was perfectly legal and that had taken place outside of work hours. Apparently, her husband's clothing, whatever it was, was not deemed indecent. These stories remind us that the efforts of Keokuk boosters to transform the city's schools emphasize recruiting and retaining highly educated men, first and foremost. But to fully understand that discrimination and the ways in which it connected to the KEA's efforts to negotiate with the school district during the late 1960s, we need to hear from Miles Brewer one more time. And yes, what he is about to say is stud fee. S-T-U-D. Stud fee. There were different uh, perks for guys. We call it a stud fee. I would have uh, a stipend added to my salary for the fact that I was married. My first child would produce another stipend, and my second child would produce another stipend. This was something I know that that the ladies were uh, resenting, and and this was another one of the things that that uh, a large percentage, since most of the faculty were ladies, they wanted it to be addressed, mm-hmm. and there was no uh, structure by which it could be addressed formally. Uh, it would be brought up by the salary committee, and the superintendent would say, "Well, I'll take your request to the board." And we'll, and it will be their decision. And they always came back with uh, denied. <laughs> you know, they, they were more diplomatic than that, but everybody knew what they meant. So, by the late 1960s, in Keokuk, Iowa, you had a large group of nearly 200 highly educated classroom teachers who were increasingly coming to see themselves as united around their common interests in things like pay and workplace control. Even though men were certainly privileged, they were also a minority, and many of them, especially in the leadership of the KEA, recognized that they couldn't address any of these common interests without also taking on what might today be called systemic inequalities around sex and gender. Moreover, as a whole, they had come to expect an increasing willingness on the part of the district to address these issues through the negotiation of master contracts. But as we'll see in episode two, as teachers became more assertive and district finances began to change, the school board rejected these expectations and any self-imposed limitations that went along with them. In 1969, the board hired a new superintendent, Robert Leland, and they began a new round of negotiations unlike any the district had ever seen. Speaking of Work is a production of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. ILHOP is a 40-year-old oral history project in collaboration between the University of Iowa Labor Center, the UI Libraries, the State Historical Society of Iowa, the Iowa Labor History Society, and the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. 
The views expressed in this podcast are of project staff, not necessarily those of Ilhop's partners and collaborators. Our theme song, Enemy, comes courtesy of Matthew Grimm. You can find his latest album, Dumpster Fire Days, at all major music retailers, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at @grimreality or on his website, grimreality.net. Keokuk, Iowa, performed by Lori Lee Woods, Hole in the Wall by The Packers. Other music by Matthew Grimm and Blue Dot Sessions. Sound effects from Freesound. Thank you for listening, and please remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you find us. You can find out more about Ilhop and about our show, Speaking of Work, at its home on the web, iowalaborhistory.org.